Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman's Miami Dock Shop Tour is behind a bunch of hits, including Cocaine Cowboys, ESPN's The U, and 537 Votes. For years, these young prophets have been predicting the vast disruption of Hollywood's old ways of doing business. Enter 2020, the most blindsiding year in the history of studio entertainment. Stick around. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on all fine podcatchers, including NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Joining me are Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. No strangers to this show, Tour is the outfit. The Miami Dock House is behind a bunch of hit works, including Cocaine Cowboys, that landmark indie doc from 2006, ESPN's The U series, 537 votes, which you can get on HBO Max. Now, Alfred and Billy kindly wrote the intro to my book, Hotel Scarface. I would say, how are you boys, but you're now men or you're, you're man children. How are you? Fine. Thank you. How are you? I got to tell you, you guys are always in my thoughts, but uh, these past few weeks, especially, I'm thinking back to that fateful Business Week profile I did of you guys. It was in the summer of 2008 um, when you were talking about the impending demise of the old Hollywood dinosaurs, that you can't go around spending thousands of dollars on floodlights and catering trucks and everything, that this was bound to collapse on itself. You have to be much more indie. You have to be much more direct to what the end user wants. You have to be platform agnostic. And I'm thinking about that as you're you're kind of in the throes of the streaming wars this week. So jump ball. Like, What do you guys think about everything that's happening after this year with the collapse of the cinema industry and, and the studios being forced to go straight to direct, like either Disney Plus or HBO Max? Well, I think what's funny about it is that when we were talking to you originally about that back in 2008, we had just watched it happen to the recorded music industry. I remember as far back, our careers really begin uh, right at the turn of the century, right in the year 2000. And the summer of 1999, two important things happened that informed both our thinking going forward and, of course, has now informed the 20 years since, which was uh, Blair Witch Project had been released in theaters in the summer of 1999 and become a huge blockbuster. Uh, right. The first movie that had been shot on digital video distributed theatrically to reach that blockbuster status. I think something like $140, $145 million gross. Um, so that really democratized the, the means of production, if you will. And that summer was the year it got a DSL line for the first time and Napster hit. And as I was staying up night after night after night, downloading <laughs> the history of recorded music, uh, because I thought that at now, any friend, minute it would disappear. I, I just want to make sure that the statute of limitations has run out on any crimes you're confessing to. <laughs> don't 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 let Dr. Dre or Metallica know. <laughs> but uh, we had we we had spent that August and September downloading just uh, just. Uh, Tons and tons of music, uh, like I said, because I, I thought that it would, you know, that, that it would end quickly. And that had kind of opened our eyes to digital distribution. So that one summer, we saw the transformation of production and distribution toward into the digital realm. And then, of course, you know, that hit the recorded music industry very hard in the early aughts and into the mid aughts. Um, but by the time we spoke in the summer of 2008, Robin, DVD was still sailing along. In fact, 
Cocaine Cowboys, our second documentary, our first big hit, <laughs> if there's such a thing in the documentary world, uh, sold a ton of DVDs uh, at retail at places like Circuit City, if you can remember something like that, or Specs or Tower Music. And so we were right on the cusp of the collapse of physical media, uh, which is what the Great Recession did uh, to, the, to the DVD industry in 2008 and kind of forced the shift into streaming. Remember, Netflix went from being a mail order company to a streaming company uh, within a couple years, shuttering their division of uh, making originals called Red Envelope, because of course, that's what you received your DVDs in uh, at the time. And so the 12 years since then has been the transformation, uh, the, the ongoing transformation of the film and television industry to the point where we are now, where we've essentially seen the collapse of the cinema business. And once again, the pandemic accelerating, I think the 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 organic market force, you know, where it was already headed. And I think Alfred's right that anyone 20 years ago who didn't see the writing on the wall and start to adapt or, or contemplate how to adapt as Netflix did pretty rapidly. Um, I think at that point you were basically just a dinosaur cursing the meteor as it hurtled toward the earth. You know, you weren't ready for what seemed to be a very obvious shift really in in not not only the, t the advancement of the technology but in the behavior of the audience you know when Warner Brothers made its announcement uh that they would be premiering well what 17 tentpole you know big budget theatrical releases day and date in theaters and uh, on HBO Max I was pretty thrilled uh in that I will see no fewer movies in the theater next year as a result of this decision, but I will see more Warner Brothers movies because they're allowing the audience to make a decision as to how we want to consume our content. And I have no doubt that as things get safer over the course of 2021, that there will be a market for you know a particular audience who will want to experience these movies you know, in that immersive, uh, you know, big screen environment. As for me, I, I prefer to, uh, you know, I prefer to be on my couch. Well, let me ask you <laughs> from a business, TV. from a businessman's perspective, how have you always been able to afford to be meh about the box office specifically, the cinema going experience going back to 2005 and 2006, <laughs> where you guys were even, you were nonplussed. You were not really bothered about the <laughs> fact that there was rampant DVD piracy. You found your stuff in the flea markets that people were burning it and spreading it around that it was not, it was not such a zero-sum existential threat to you as you saw Christopher Nolan this week calling out Warner Brothers for disenfranchising so many thousands and thousands of movie industry employees. Well, the absurdity of the business really struck us in 2006 as cocaine cows we were preparing for the Cocaine Cowboys theatrical release. And it, it had struck us earlier <laughs> than that, but this was really the absurdity of it, which is that you spend the most amount of money and the most amount of resources to market your film in the theatrical window when it is available to the fewest number of people. So if you're particularly in the indie film business or the or the the documentary a uh, 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 feature documentary business in particular, where your film comes out maybe in New York and L.A., but you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote it and spread the message. And of course, and this was kind of still at the dawn of the internet, certainly the dawn of the social internet age, uh, more and more people would find out about it across the country. But if you weren't in a city that had a theater that was showing the movie four times a day at the times they specified, you didn't have the opportunity to see it. And by the time you did, whether that was on television or DVD, it was months later and you've forgotten about it because you're paying attention to the movie that's currently being marketed theatrically. 
And Alfred, not just particular place, particular time, but weather permitting, right, of, of course. course. Uh, <laughs> like people's decisions about whether or not to leave their home. I mean, you're at the mercy of so many variables that are out of your control. Um, and of course, uh, by the time Cocaine Cowboys reached theaters, it had already exploded uh, in the bootleg market. And I have to thank you, Robin, for referring to Cocaine Cowboys in your introduction as a, quote, landmark indie doc, end quote, rather than the the more common uh, cult classic is the term we, we, we hear very often, which I always say the definition of a cult classic is a movie that everyone has seen and hasn't made any money. Uh, <laughs> so then that and for a while, that was certainly Cocaine Cowboys. But what we discovered was through the bootlegging process that our audience on that doc anyway was not in the movie theater. Uh, you could just look at the grosses uh, to determine that. But our audience was in the flea markets. Our audience was in the bootleg market in strip club bathrooms uh, or wherever or the the parking lot of Walmarts, wherever bootlegs were sold. And so that's where our audience was. So who are we to say to our audience or, you know, our fans like, no, you you can't see content the way you want to see it. You have to see it the way that we want to see it. You did want to get paid, obviously. Yes, you wanted to prime the market for future releases and whatnot, but you were you were theoretically depriving yourself of that chunky first-run DVD sale or first-run movie ticket sale. Well, we weren't we weren't depriving ourselves of anything. The market decided. You know, we, we were right. we you know, we didn't bootleg our our own movie. Those were fans. Those were people who loved the 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 doc and loved our work. So, I guess our our choice at that moment was we could go the way of, you know, uh, the recording industry and I guess start to sue our fans, you know, to, to, to stop it. But how do you, you stop it? it? It was already, once they burned it down onto one DVD-R, it was being burned onto tens and hundreds of thousands of, of DVD-Rs. So, so really we just, you couldn't, you couldn't put the, uh, the, the genie back in the bottle at that point. So I think we just needed to, I mean, it was, was it a costly lesson perhaps, but it was a lesson that we learned and and realized that we had to adapt or die. You know, and to illustrate for you guys how far this worm has, how much this worm has turned, if you take the uh, multinational media colossus, the Walt Disney Company, parent of ESPN, which you guys have, have dealt with for your uh, 30 for 30 series, the U, um, by all means, this is a cataclysmic year for Disney. Its theme parks are closed even when they open. People are not exactly psyched to go and jam themselves onto uh, monorails and boats. And uh, the advertising industry has taken a huge hit, so that's hurt them in ABC. Live sports have been very perilous. But they do have Disney+, Plus, which is losing them money. They're straight to streaming service. And the subscriber editions during the pandemic have been far chunkier than expected. So they're losing more money than expected in the short term. And here you go. We're at the end of 2020. And the stock is near an all-time high. The company is worth $315 billion. How if I had if I had predicted to you that they would have learned it this way, because they were notorious in the past for not wanting to to send things directly to the streaming service, for staggering it as much as possible to get as much money out of theatrical and DVD before the masses and the plebs got to stream anything. 
Well, I think we're also talking about two different businesses here to some degree, obviously. I mean, uh, Billy and I uh, have been in the independent film and uh, feature documentary business, and certainly Disney is not in that business. So there is a market, and there will probably continue to be a market for event, theatrical, big special effects features uh, when and if, uh, you know, we all want to sit in, in, in movie theaters again. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think it would be wrong to say that the theatrical experience will completely disappear, but it will become more curated and it will become, uh, you know, just a smaller piece of the pie. You know, I think, you know, in the same way that bookstores, uh, you know, the big chains, uh, Borders and Barnes and Noble, uh, Walden Books and B. Dalton from our childhood no longer exist. Uh, the indies do because they figured out new ways and new models. So I think you'll see the same thing with indie cinema doing the same thing, uh, uh, trying to discover how to attract people to that, that theatrical experience. But from the perspective of Disney, certainly what they are now realizing is that the people you want to be in business with are not necessarily the cable companies or the satellite telcos or the internet uh, providers. You want to be in business with your customers. You want to have the relationship directly with your customer. You want to know who they are, what they consume, how they consume it. And that's the secret sauce that Netflix has been employing for the past uh, almost 10 years now, uh, well, a little less, uh, in determining how they commission entertainment. And, and, and what they're going to what they're going to uh, to commission because they have the data they have the numbers and it's not a sample it's not a, you know sampling a, a thousand people or ten thousand people and trying to extrapolate out what the entire country is watching uh, you know I remember at the back at the uh, the dawn of the the tens when uh, Arbitron uh, the, the the radio rating service switched to people meters where they would clip a a little device onto your belt to determine exactly what it was you were listening to rather than depending on the diaries. And all of a sudden, radio uh, stars and talk radio hosts who were insanely popular for decades, all of a sudden, when we got down to the actual empirical data, realized that, boy, they weren't uh, as influential or they weren't as popular as people had thought. So I think for Disney, it's a matter of being able to not only sell them on the subscription video on demand service, but also then being able to package that into theme park tickets and vacations and all sorts of other uh, add-ons uh, uh, you know, across the spectrum of businesses or their portfolio of businesses. I don't know much about Wall Street other than they don't know much about Main Street or the real world. And But they are very often attempting and and not too bad at predicting the future. And I think that um, in the case of Disney, um, Alfred's been talking a lot about pent-up demand through the pandemic. And once we get on the other side of this thing, maybe by the summer or the fall, uh, hopefully at the latest, uh, a lot of people will want, you know, who have disposable income or any income at that point, will want to go out to bars or clubs or live uh music events and theme parks. And so I think Disney and, and Wall Street are anticipating that pent-up demand for basically their vacations is what, what they're selling because they're not just selling theme parks. They're selling concessions. They're selling hotel rooms. They're selling meals. Um, and I think that's the the streaming model for them as well. Remember, in, in their theme parks, they are the producer uh, exhibit a distributor and exhibitor, right? All the money is theirs. Uh, you know, they have everything but an airline, you know, to get you right. to Disney. And, oh, they used to have they used to have a cruise ship too. That's right. <laughs> yeah, they, that's right. Well, they and so um, 
other than that, and, and the gas stations along the way, if you're driving on the Florida Turnpike to get there. But otherwise, Disney is the producer, um, uh, exi- uh, distributor, and exhibitor, it, theoretically, in their in their theme park business, and that's what they are now in the streaming business. They are, and and um, as we know, a lot of the the big time streamers are heavily leveraged, you know, um, and just in, in terms of being able to keep up with the, the licensing and original content demands of, of their, of their subscribers. But the reality is, is that Disney has an extraordinary library that they, that, uh, more so than any of the other streaming services, um, that is entirely theirs that they control and own outright. Um, that is incredibly valuable to their, to their subscribers. Um, and, uh, and they're creating some outstanding new content. And so, um, I mean, they obviously haven't have an edge or are, are as close to a, a competitor with uh, with Netflix as as anybody else probably can be uh, at the moment, which is why the move by you know Warner Brothers and AT and T and HBO Max is so bold. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. They are the founders of the Miami Documentary House uh, Raconteur, which is nearing what twenty twenty years of of work. Yes, you just made me feel really old. Tell me about the HBO Max experience because 537, you're very much talked about, Doc, about the 2000 election fiasco in Florida and everything that went down in the recount. That was initially offered on HBO, but then it lived its long life on HBO Max, the streaming service. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, this project was <laughs> so 537 votes began as an idea in our office back in uh, August of 2019. Uh, we were sitting around 15 months before what I considered to be the most, uh, Billy considered to be the most consequential presidential election of our lifetimes and maybe in American history. And we were debating what we were going to do and, and how we were going to get involved, what, uh, what, what we would do to, uh, to change, affect the outcome. And so in talking about it, uh, we started talking about the 20th, the upcoming 20th anniversary of the 2000 election fiasco in Florida. And we had an assistant at the time who was born in 1990. So she was 10 years old at the time. And I said to her, well, what do you know about the 2000 election fiasco? And she's a Floridian. She was in fifth grade at the time. And she knew a couple things, didn't really kind of know the, the whole, the scope of the story, knew, you know, some keywords like chads. Um, and I said, well, do you know that the entire election was decided over 537 votes? And she was shocked. And we said, wow, this is really interesting because there's obviously a large percentage of voters, usually younger voters, who are apathetic and think that, well, their vote doesn't really count. And so we said, well, we wanted to know how many Americans were situated like that. So we said, well, how many Americans were born between the years 1990 when she was born and 2002? Uh, which would have made you 18 to vote for the first time in, in 2020. And the number astounded us. The, the answer is 54 million Americans were born between 1990 and 2002. And so when we decided to make 537 votes, we said, well, this is who we're making it for. This is our stealth get out the vote campaign. If you think that your vote doesn't count, you don't know the story of what went down in Florida in 2000. And so we didn't have a buyer. We didn't have a financier. We had an idea. And we said, we're going to focus this on Dade County. We said we needed to do a new take on the 2000 election because it had been so examined and lampooned over the past 20 years. What was going to be the fresh insight? And the fresh insight we wanted to bring was examine this theory that essentially what happened in Dade County, Miami-Dade County over the course of the year 2000, swung the presidential election. So looking at the Elian Gonzalez custody fiasco and marrying that to the events that happened in the recount Dade County, specifically culminating in the so-called Brooks Brothers riot, we were able to tell this story of, of this cautionary tale of the election. 
how and why walk me through selling this or merchandising it from idea to uh, delivery to you know do you put it out for bid do you say listen I know a guy at HBO Max who would be uh, hot for this that's right well the idea basically was is that we would shoot some interviews on spec we would basically go out finance these interviews um, produce them and then cut in what's known in our business as a sizzle reel right. kind of a, a trailer a, a highlight reel essentially kind of a proof of concept of what the doc would be and so through the course of the winter, um, uh, January and February 2020, we were shooting. In fact, we shot the very last interview for the doc on March 12th in Santa Barbara, California wow. with Anne Louise Bardak, the hmm. day basically after the entire world shut down on March 11th. And so Billy and I then flew back to Miami the next day, March 13th, um, again, with no buyer, <laughs> no film, but the and, and of course, a rapidly approaching deadline uh, because the goal, the whole purpose was to get the film out before the election. And mm. so, and now with the and, show- and by the way, that, that's a very disadvantageous position. <laughs> Let's say going to buyers basically with the demand, so to speak, of a, of a release date. You know, really, it's it's up to the, the distributors when and how they want to put out a movie. But we were kind of, in a way, almost limiting our options because, you know, there was a lot of buyers who had their schedules set, you know, or had their releases set for, uh, you know, September, October, November. But we were really looking for like a late November release for the late, documentary. Late so release. to Alfred's point, I'm sorry, late October release, you know, ahead of the of the November election. And so we, you know, we, we were kind of self-limiting, you know, our options uh, at that point, in addition to running out of time, both to cut a sizzle reel, sell a movie and finish it in time for that. So we had, we had set a lot of uh, very heavy limitations for ourselves. So there. this became a kind of a year long sprint for us to finish the movie. And what had happened in the intervening time is we had heard that um, Adam McKay, the, uh, the, the Oscar nominated uh, writer, director of uh, Vice and The Big Short, uh, was a fan of Screwball, our uh, previous doc. And so we reached out to Adam knowing his his politics and, and uh, what his current interests were. And we showed him and his partner, Todd Shulman, the sizzle reel. And they loved it and said, we'd love to get on board. Two, two things there I have to say. First is uh, Adam won an Academy Award. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that's um, right. So yes, winner, not for, a nominee. for best adapted that's screenplay. Right. Yes, for best. And in addition to many other nominations uh, for, for the, the screenplay, the adapted screenplay for The Big Short. And we and Alfred and I, in conceptualizing, shooting, and starting to put together, well, in pu- putting together the sizzle reel for 537 votes, were already regularly referring to the documentary as Adam McKay-esque. Oh. Um, that was a very common term around the office. And, Walk me through this yeah. part, Billy and Alfred. Uh, mm. Here's, you've now been, you've had experience with, we talked about ESPN, which is owned by Disney. HBO Max, which is where, what, Screwball was. You've dealt with Mark Cuban and Magnolia. You've been full indie to whatever, PlayStation, uh, Flea Market, DVD Rips, DivX. Uh, you've now dealt with all the big players, clearly HBO Max. Um, you know, you are the true content maker and you can afford to be agnostic. And there I failed to mention Netflix, yeah. right? So how how do you decide at a time of multiple platforms and multiplying platforms? <laughs> There's Hulu, after all, which is owned by Disney. How do you decide where it ends up or who takes it or do you care? Well, we really don't decide per se. We did decide, I should say, though, in that like we had already, as I 
just said we had already kind of limited our options by kind of almost making certain demands. Like we we really wanted it out ahead of the election, you know. And again, that there's only so many buyers who were willing or able to accomplish that on such short notice. Because Alfred, when did we finally take it out? When it, was it? It, was it, late. it didn't go out until July. We had we had we had, <laughs> we had decided to partner with uh, with Adam and Todd, and Adam and Todd had a deal. Their production company had a deal at HBO. Uh, had a first look deal at HBO, and we were and are still are currently working on a project with Netflix. Would you explain a first look deal for our listeners? Sure. A first look deal is simply uh, a deal that uh, established producers, directors, writers uh, can obtain with a studio, a production company, a financier, which basically pays your overhead, covers your office, an assistant, gives you some development money, pays you a salary, essentially. And in exchange for that, uh, that studio or that financier gets a first look uh, to finance any of the projects that you are developing. So some of them are exclusive, which basically means that if you have a first look deal with HBO, exclusive, and they pass, then you can't take the project anywhere else. Some of them are simply a first look. You get a first right of refusal, essentially. Um, So they're structured all different ways. Uh, But we had, uh, so Adam and Todd had this deal at HBO, and we were working with Netflix, and we said, well, you know, one of our goals, particularly with this project, was to make it available as widely as possible to the biggest audience. And so that really meant that, okay, we don't really necessarily want just a linear cable channel deal where the doc would play at 9 p.m. on X cable channel and then, you know, repeat a couple weeks later maybe, but not really be available. We were looking for a place, particularly, I think, a streamer in this case. And and fortunately, uh, we were able to do the deal with both HBO, the linear channel, and of course, uh, 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 supplement that the next day with, with, with the uh, doc appearing immediately on HBO Max. And so it was really the best of both worlds because- You have to do these separately, right? It wasn't understood that it appears on HBO, it also resides on HBO Max, right? Those are separate it negotiations. It does. Well, well, net, net, well, though they have separate executives and uh, separate structures, um, HBO content is now appearing. Uh, HBO from the linear channel is now appearing on HBO Max uh, sooner and sooner. I, th- I suppose that's part of AT and T's mandate uh, in terms of uniting the linear channel and the streaming service, uh, and to make that connection tighter and you know and, and more beneficial. For the for both, I will admit I was very confused. Um, even when we were preparing for release, I, I, I think several times, Alfred, I said to you, "We're on the linear network, right? <laughs> like we'll be on HBO proper before HBO Max." And I was like, "Yes, yes, we will," because they were really, you know, they're heavily promoting HBO Max, and rightfully so. Um, so I was a little, and I was also confused when I became an HBO Max subscriber earlier this year with my HBO subscription, you know, um, and my you know my cable. Uh, you know, HBO premium cable subscription. And so I, I wasn't exactly sure. At first, I, th- I I think they were marketing it as like the new HBO on the go or what, you know, and I wasn't really sure what the difference between that and on demand, you know, HBO on demand was. And it's taken me, honestly, the better part of uh, really the, the, the fourth quarter of this year to kind of fully understand it. And I think, again, that's why the, the, uh, the move with uh, the 2021 Warner Brothers slate is so bold because it's like, oh, that's why I need it. Let me explain that. Hollywood Reporter has it in a big feature. On December 3rd, in a move that blindsided its business partners and sparked threats of lawsuits, uh, Warner, the studio, announced that it would apply a hybrid release plan to all 17 films on its 2021 slate, uh, including event movies like The Suicide Squad and Dune. 
When we discussed it with medical experts and looked at it diligently, said an executive, it became more apparent that there will continue to be a real impact on the business through the entire year. So we made the plan to have a reliable year-long strategy. Let me continue. The financial implications of this. Uh, while studios are looking to the future, the present is dire. The 2020 domestic box office will struggle to hit $2.3 billion, down nearly 80% from 2019, the lowest level in at least 40 years, and that's without adjusting for inflation. Now, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, from a disruption, a self-disruption perspective, there is a significant interim cost, whether you're Warner, whether you're Disney, and kind of disrupting yourself, as there was with Netflix when it went from a red envelope DVD mailer to becoming a bona fide you know, content shop itself. Uh, Warner, the, the HBO Max uh, program, as you know, these anxieties within the entertainment divisions were playing out as parent company AT&T was seeking to justify its $85 billion 2018 acquisition of Warner Media, which has added to its heavy debt burden and done little to boost AT&T's stock price, even amid layoffs of more than 1,000 this year. Uh, it's really a leap of faith that you have to make. And as you mentioned earlier, Billy, uh, this was, you know, people were prodded in, in, in making this leap by the pandemic, but it's certainly costly in the near term, in the intermediate term. Well, yeah, but I think, first of all, I have to say, as documentarians, we don't necessarily customize our projects for a theatrical experience. You know, um, our audience is, is much more likely to be at home, streaming, on demand, et cetera, uh, so I appreciate the position of of filmmakers and and artists who go through an incredible amount of trouble to create immersive storytelling, big worlds that are best experienced on a big screen, you know, with extraordinary, you know, state of the art sound and and maybe even in a collective experience with with an audience. Um, I understand that. The reality is is now we have. The option in 2021 with Warner Brothers titles, it, again, if you feel safe and you want that theatrical experience, it's opening day and date. As for me, I'm, I'm much more likely to opt for the HBO Max uh, experience. Um, as I said before, this decision by Warner Brothers will have zero impact on my decisions, my movie going decisions next year. I will see no fewer movies in the theater in 2021 as a result of, of this move, but I will see more Warner Brothers movies than perhaps I had planned to see because they'll be immediately available to, to me at home. And I, that's just, that's how I, I choose to experience these things. To be perfectly honest, you know, Alfred had used the example of, of kind of, you know, the big bookstore chains versus the the more agile and creative independent bookstores and I think we saw we've seen that with the major exhibitors as well AMC and Regal etc were very slow to respond and adapt to uh, moviegoers needs um the experience uh, as the price was going up the experience the quality of the experience of going to one of these megaplexes was has deteriorated precipitously over the last 20 plus years. Uh, whereas you've seen some other upstart companies, not exactly profitable, but things like, you know, iPick and those types of premium kind of adult movie going experience. I don't mean adult movies, but movie going experience more customized yeah. to adults where they have, you know, they serve drinks, you know, yeah. full meals 
yeah, cocktails, right, a full bar, full meals at your at your seat and have a more adult experience. Um, you know, a, a night out at the movies that could cost you $200 or so, but it, that's all dinner and a movie in one and cocktails, you know, all all in one. Um, and so I think those will be more likely the, the types of businesses that will survive uh, and likely the IMAX, uh, which provides its own, you know, kind of, again, big screen immersive experience that I think a lot of these filmmakers uh, are excited about. But then if you look at Warner Brothers, uh, you know, they were the first people during the pandemic to release one of their big budget tentpole movies with Chris Nolan's Tenet uh, in August. They did it in good faith to try to keep exhibitors open uh, and in business and generating some revenue. I think it didn't, it did not perform uh, the way they had, had hoped. So this is a, this is a calculated risk uh, on their part. And I think it may pay off with, with HBO Max subscriptions. Also two big points on the pushback from the creative community and from the talent agencies that we've been, been seeing. And these yeah, two take, points take are, Chris are Nolan. Critical. Billy just mentioned Chris Nolan. And that is, I mean, you guys are a, still a slim, lean doc house, right? And you kind of do it on the fly and you do it on, on, sometimes on the seat of your pants when you have to get it in like you were talking about this summer with 537. But this guy is the antithesis of that. This guy does it bigly. This guy does it with massive budgets, massive crews, <laughs> overruns and everything. And he has a huge lament and he's saying that I, you know, I will never work with Warner Brothers again after they did this. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak or or speak to to Christopher Nolan's uh, motivations or his 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 uh, position on this specifically, but I I wanted to say something larger about the creative community, and it's an important point to understand, is that for decades now, uh, deals for actors and producers and directors and writers. Uh, in many cases, have been predicated upon the bonuses for theatrical performance. And the reason why that was uh, primarily is because theatrical revenue is one of the very few transparent uh, uh, data points that exist in the entertainment industry. You open up the newspaper on Monday, you know what the top grossing films were from the weekend. So it was something that agents uh, and managers and, uh, and, and, and lawyers in the notorious uh, Hollywood accounting system could simply say, you can do whatever creative tricks you want, but we know what the gross is, it's reported here, and so bonuses for performance will be based on those grosses. So I think there is some pushback to this plan uh, and, and to plans going forward based on the kind of the desire to continue to perpetuate the existing business model. The second issue is the creative community's concerns, rightfully so, over the past 20 or 30 years as we've seen corporate consolidation in Hollywood towards self-dealing. And in fact, there has been major litigation. There's the litigation that uh, uh, over um, the AMC show, The Walking Dead, uh, about how AMC licensed, the, the production company licensed the film to the channel to, you know, whether or not those deals were arm's length deals. In this case, you have Warner Brothers licensing films to be distributed on their subsidiary streaming service. So are you getting a fair market value for those uh, licensing rights? And does that does that cut off the theatrical flow altogether? And so I think that a lot of the concern is, is predicated upon that, uh, the self-dealing concerns as well as these, uh, you know, how are we going to structure deals? And also because Netflix really set the, the bar for a lack of transparency when it comes to streaming 
statistics. Now, occasionally on earnings calls or press releases, you'll hear how particular Netflix titles do. But overall, we don't get streaming ratings. And streaming deals are basically predicated not on number of streams or number of views like a Spotify deal for music, but are simply a term license, 18 months, 24 months, 30, so whatever the term is. So uh, this is having the effect of upending uh, 20, 30, 40 years of business practice. And I think that a lot of the concern, though you know, not short-selling the creative concerns that creatives might have here uh, in terms of seeing things theatrically, uh, I think a lot of this is, a, is an underlying business concern. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. Raconteur is their Miami documentary house. It's behind a bunch of hits, including Cocaine Cowboys, ESPN's The U, 537 Votes, which is available now on HBO Max. Alfred and Billy kindly wrote the intro to my book, Hotel Scarface. I do have to ask you, uh, jump ball again for either of you, because we're talking about a multitude of streamers and there are huge laggards like Viacom and and the others are like the, the kids in the back row saying, oh, 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 what about me? What about me? You know, belatedly coming to the OTT game. Aren't you feeling login fatigue at this point? I mean, how many different people want to hit me up? It's not just, <laughs> you know, the old cable, the old cable package you guys are talking about and crushing my $120, $130 bill into several different streaming accounts, but it's Spotify, it's what, you know, what is my book budget? What is gosh, everybody's asking me, Hulu, you know, it's not just Disney Plus, but Hulu, ESPN hasn't figured out a better mousetrap. Viacom is like, wait, don't forget about us. NBC Universal has a Peacock streamer. I mean, at some point, aren't you just recreating the cable dial? Well, I think what's interesting is that is this transformation over 20 years that we've seen, you know, the buzzword in the aughts, the buzzword was unbundling, right? We are unbundling the album into songs, uh, via Napster and then the iTunes store. We are unbundling newspapers from a package of articles with advertisements into individual articles that you read online. Uh, unbundling of the, the cable bundle. We want a la carte. Uh, you know, so there was a big move towards unbundling in all of our entertainment and media uh, consumption in the aughts. And then what happened is all of a sudden, when you were now were being proposed to purchase a la carte via, like, for example, video on demand uh, or individual songs, there was some pushback on spending 99 cents a song and whether that was a value proposition that made sense or whether I'm going to spend 10 or 15 or in the case of like an ultra VOD model where it was a day and date thing, 30, 40 dollars for a particular title. And then when Spotify launched and then Netflix launched you all of a sudden had a bundle again, a subscription price. And, and it was when Spotify launched with that subscription model for music that I said, okay, this is just going to be a race to the bottom. All of these other windows are going to collapse now back into a streaming model because we're not going to pay for a la carte content. And so <laughs> that's exactly what's happened. Now we are, as you put it, Robin, we now have all these streaming services and all of a sudden they kind of become a bundle unto themselves. So we watched <laughs> the unbundling happen uh, of content and now we are seeing the rebundling uh, just in a different way, a rebundling around subscription. And I think that is uh, ultimately where we end up here uh, in all of our media consumption. And so the question is, unlike music, where your goal is to have your song on every streaming service, you know, unless you're Jay-Z and you're an <laughs> equity investor in title, I suppose, uh, you know, on the, on the film and television side of things, it's all about exclusives. And so uh, Netflix wants 
uh, licensed content exclusively. Hulu wants licensed content exclusively. So you're right. Now, all of a sudden, you have to subscribe to all of these streamers. And who knows what Viacom is going to end up doing. Uh, you know, It seems like Viacom is headed in the direction of ad-supported video on demand. Uh, you know, with uh, with Pluto. So, uh, you know, that's I think, <laughs> I never probably heard of the next frontier. Yeah. Oh, the, the, sh the short answer, answer is get us into it's Quibi. Quibi, right? Nobody's in Quibi anymore. You don't have to worry about we it. Yeah, we don't have to get <laughs> yeah. into it. But, but I think what's funny is that, like, you know, the short answer is there's just too many of them. I mean, like, I turn on the TV, they want to sell me Discover Plus and AMC Plus. And uh, first of all, I already subscribe to these uh, cable networks through my cable subscription. I, and I got to say, for, for, for the longest time, I could never figure out the cable business model and why it was ever so successful. Uh, the idea that, you know, we pay for all of these channels, whether we watch them or not, or want them or not, you know, I mean, it would be like going to your supermarket every month and, um, you know, you get a shopping cart and they put whatever they want into your shopping cart and you get to put in a few extra premium items that you actually have to pay extra for. And then you give them $200 and you leave. What kind of business models that nobody would, nobody would do that. Nobody would pay for all of these products that they're not using, which is what we all do. Those of us who are still subscribed to, you know, to cable every single month. And the reality is, I don't know if it's the good old lazy American in me, you refer to it as, as a login fatigue. Now I'm just like, oh, would someone just package these for me? Just tell me, you know, just put them all together into one so I can just pay $200 and just get what I, you know, and get everything I need and maybe a few extra things that I don't need, but just so I don't have to figure out all these, these subscriptions anymore. It's, it's absurd and it's untenable. And I think, you know, as you saw with the, uh, you know, to, to quote uh, Jay-Z grand opening, grand closing of Quibi, they're not all long for this for this world. Let me and understand something to, is that was the appeal to an AT&T to go out and, and lever itself up, as you'd mentioned, Billy, to take out an enormous amount of debt and pay a huge premium for Warner Brothers and the HBO catalog and everything that you see on HBO Max now. Is that for the company to make its wireless plans more difficult to cancel? I mean, are you hearing from people that they get AT&T subscribers, for example, get to watch your doc 537 for free? Is that understood? Listen, it's it's um it's what I said, you know, it's 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 Disney as producer, distributor and exhibitor. And 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 listen, now I think the way this is all going to end theatrically is not just with the kind of premium uh boutique exhibitors, but with the end of the Paramount consent decree, there will be Amazon movie theaters and Netflix owned movie theaters and Disney there already are some Disney-owned movie theaters. You won't need AMC and Regal because they will, and to Alfred's point about the transparency, that's where it's going to all end up is there's no more antitrust uh, rules basically governing the ability of studios to, to, own, uh, to own movie theaters and exhibition uh, uh, companies. So um, I, I think that that's what it's about. I mean, AT&T provides the phones. They provide the pipes. You know, I, I, you have AT&T, uh, you know, internet service at home. They provide your, your mobile service. They provide your cable. They provide, you know, with direct TV, they provide your content and they, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's to, it's to keep as much of your money in, in the parent company uh, as humanly possible and control sort of every element of your uh, communication output in and out. The ubiquitous company, the one with, uh, until recently, I think it had the biggest market capitalization on the planet is Apple. Apple also has a side gig as a film studio. And you saw some controversy this week in that 
you see Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, stuff leaks out that we don't want to offend China and we might not want to have you know, graphic nudity in certain films and everything. How do you get your head around Apple as a device maker, as the chief device maker is also a content colossus? I don't think Apple as a financier of content is, is long for that, uh, th- for this world. Um, the controversy actually uh, began last year with a documentary uh, about uh, sexual assault in the music business that dealt with uh, some allegations against Russell Simmons that Oprah Winfrey had signed on to executive produce and when there w- and was going to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival last year. And when there was some pushback, Oprah dropped out. And as a result, Apple dropped out of distributing that documentary. So we've seen this and we've seen Apple do this a couple times now. And, you know, I just think it's a it is a it is a culture issue. You know, if you you know, companies that are produce content are company media companies that have a, a strong devotion to the First Amendment and to expression of creatives. And I just don't think that's necessarily Apple's culture. And frankly, I'm surprised. Uh, I would have bet probably two, three years ago that Apple would have bought Netflix. And that's how they would get in the streaming business, the same way that they bought uh, Beats by Dre uh, to, to, to get involved in the, in the streaming music business. Uh, the idea that Apple is going to be a creative uh, partner in the creation of content just never rung true from a corporate culture perspective to me. Alfred and Billy of Raconteur, in the 10 or 12 minutes or so we have left, I would be remiss in my uh, duty as host of Full Disclosure and as a fellow fan of the genre you guys made a huge name for yourselves covering it, you know, Cocaine Miami. Tell us about the next installment of Cocaine Cowboys, Los Muchachos, the saga of the the Willie and Sal gang. I mean, this is a story that's very near and dear to all of our hearts. I'm amazed when I step back from this that this story effectively started with the state, you know, the, the state prosecutor pursuing these guys in 1980. And it effectively continues into the year 2020, 40 years later, surviving Janet Reno, surviving witness tampering, all of these things that you're going to cover in the doc. Tell us when it hits. Tell us what you're thinking. Tell us uh, the state of play, whatever you can. It is a. It is actually the saga that uh, we had originally wanted to be the subject of the first Cocaine Cowboys documentary, but because the trials were ongoing at the time, the cases were ongoing, we weren't able to get the access we needed, so we ended up making the documentary involving some other characters and something we always wanted to come back to. Uh, and we've been working on this project for close to a dozen years now. I can't tell you too much about it just yet because we don't have an announcement ready. Uh, it's funny, in our business, in the documentary business, we don't talk about our upcoming projects until we are on the eve of release, unlike the film business, uh, the traditional narrative film business, which likes to promote their projects way in advance. Uh, for us, it's a matter of uh, dotting our I's and crossing our T's and making sure that we've nailed the story properly. So uh, I will tell you, though, that it will be out in 2021, and uh, we would love to come back and talk to you all about it. Uh, Billy, throw me a bone. I mean, I, you guys have been unusually, unusually coy about this, and everybody, everybody in Miami is asking about it. Like, when is it going to hit? When is it going to hit? Because this, again, this gets talked about so much. These these guys, you know, to some degree, uh, among Marielle refugees and other people who grew up in Miami, had a Robin Hood swashbuckling type reputation. They get snabbed in 1991 in the biggest cocaine bust in Miami history, and that saga 
actually the pursuit of these guys through the 1980s, the subterfuge, the the back and forth drama, the corruption, the informants. Again, it's really the story of Miami. It's irresistible. And I know you guys get messaged about it daily, but it's like this Manhattan project that you have to keep under wraps. <laughs> I, I know I know I know it comes up all the time uh, uh, for you in the circles you run in. Uh, Robin, you know, that's just, just that's uh, you're just a cocaine cowboy kind of guy. Uh, but I, 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 in fact, I'm, I'm pretty surprised Alfred said as much as he did. I thought we were, I thought we were on total embargo right now. It has come up a lot through the years because, like Alfred said, we've been working on it for almost 12 years. And so, uh, it has come up as a, as a dream project, as a labor of love. Uh, and it's something that we actually carried for a long time on our on our own. Five thirty seven, we only carried for what less than a year, but this one we've been car- we carried for much longer. Um, and uh, now we've got some some great partners on it, and are finishing you know putting the the, the finishing touches on it for twenty twenty one. Um, and uh, it's I'm I'm very excited about it, and and I'm very excited to come back to full disclosure to tell you all about oh, it. Oh, I mean, come as on, Billy, all think sur- back, think back. As soon as we <laughs> all survive, successfully survive 2020. Well, here, here's the, the deal. Year. Think back, both of you, to 2008 when I'm interviewing you for Business Week at your favorite restaurant, Joe Allen, the dearly departed Joe Allen in Miami Beach. You're tucking into uh, meatloaf and potatoes and whatever it is. And you would have said, wow, someday you're going to interview me again and I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be beholden to kind of non-disclosure and conformity. You guys were openly disdainful <laughs> of all the stuff that Hollywood goes through. Now, now, you know, Alfred, your dear, your dear late dog, you said we were so we were so lean <laughs> that I gave my dog credits on our documentary, like in the end on the Chiron. There's Surely there's more that you can tell me because everybody is asking me to like, I mean, short of bribing me to get you guys to release it. I, not that I have any sway, but anything else, really <laughs> anything else you could throw us without violating confidentiality? Robin, do you think we would have made it to our 20 year anniversary if we weren't able to keep good secrets? Ah, uh, and hence you see how- <laughs> yes, can I, can I just, I want to do a quick, I want to do a quick, uh, you're listening to non-disclosure. Oh, <laughs> no, that's terrible. Rob, so we, defi- yeah. we will definitely come back and uh, uh, when Muchachos is ready uh, and uh, talk about how uh, if the federal government had put as much uh, time and effort into uh, nailing the Sacklers as they did to William Sal, a couple hundred thousand Americans might still be alive. You're talking about the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis. That's correct. Drug dealers. You're talking about drug dealers. Yes. Well... In the few minutes we do have left, I'd love to get your predictions for the next year for the industry. I mean, this is, again, 12 years after I interviewed you. I got back in touch because, gosh, I mean, who would have thought it would have taken a pandemic and all of these other things to truly accelerate what was going on and to make things like Zoom suddenly common and normal and the fact that we can produce remotely. What do you see happening over the next two, five years? I mean, in the interest of always having you back on the show. Well, let's let's talk about some good news first. Billy alluded to it earlier. I am very bullish on 2021, uh, assuming that we can get the uh, the vaccine into enough Americans' arms. I think that there is going to be a pent up demand that is about to explode. And from an entertainment perspective, uh, think about all the touring musicians, the touring bands, the Rolling Stones of the world. Uh, you know, the guys who go out on the summer sheds every year. The guys like Jimmy Buffett who go have to tour every year, who lost all that revenue this year. As soon as it's safe to go out. 
I think we are going to have a boom in live music. I mean, I, I'm thinking we're going to have, you know, we'll have concerts every night of the week because every touring musician who lost all that revenue in 2020 is going to be out on the road as soon as humanly possible. So I think the 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 experiences, the entertainment experiences that are going to be available uh, by late 2021, early 2022, I think we're headed into the roaring 20s, assuming that, uh, you know, that we don't have any sort of uh, a further economic shock and maybe the commercial real estate market doesn't uh, crater and student debt gets solved. I think we're in for a good few years. I, I've been remiss and it's way too late to get into it, but I I, I never got into uh, uh, OnlyFans or Cameo. Jeez. I mean, to talk about that, if we got back to that original interview in 2008 and say you could truly cut to the chase to the content creator, the the bandwidth and the ubiquity of ubiquitousness of, of, of webcams and everything, that's for a whole other interview. But this is truly a a transformational year in terms of media production. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I, I think that, that that goes without saying. And I think that, that uh, you know, the streaming revolution, uh, th- thanks to the pandemic, has, has accelerated in the same way that the Great Recession uh, buried the DVD and forced the entertainment industry into the digital world. I think that uh, this will just uh, uh, embolden the streamers. And and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more investment and a lot more focus on, uh, on streaming internationally uh, at this point. And hopefully we'll see further democratization of, of production and, and a wider variety of talent getting into the game. I think one of the products of the pandemic is, well, I think people will still crave the competence and professionalism of, you know, well-produced uh, TV and content. We've watched a lot of uh, shows done from home, you know, li- hosts, literally hosting from home and in what really amount to kind of glorified, uh, you know, Instagram uh, you know, uh, a live conversations, you know, and, and, uh, and some of them have been damn great. You know, I think the daily show has been as good, if not better than ever. I think Stephen Colbert has been as good, if not better than ever. I thought, uh, SNL from quarantine was brilliant. Actually. <laughs> I thought there, it, 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 the limitations, as we've always said, as we've always said as independent filmmakers, limitations, uh, breed creativity. And so I think we've seen a lot of creativity through this and, and then the audience's, threshold for kind of what we're what we're willing to to watch in terms of professionalism and competency has been not compromised in a bad way but compromised to kind of allow for more voices and more different kinds of content that might not be uh, at you know at peak uh, uh production levels of production value uh, and I think that that's I think that that's exciting uh too the kind of new voices and new personalities and new talent that might be able to enter uh, you know, the world of content creation as a result of, I think, the pandemic sort of accelerating uh, market trends and, of course, uh, demanding uh, creative uh, creative solutions. I got to tell you, boys, in closing, it never gets old for me. I get in the car, uh, fire up the Bluetooth, fire up the Spotify, and over my data plan, it would have been unthinkable back when we were downloading on Napster and LimeWire that you could have pretty much <laughs> any song ever made at your fingertips on demand, Right. On subscription, your your prophecies and then some were very true uh, back at the turn of the century and in 2008. And I can't wait to see where you, where you, Enfant Terribles, will be in 10 years. Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman of Raconteur, makers of a bunch of hits including Cocaine Cowboys, ESPN's The U, 537 votes on HBO Max. And upcoming, even though we're never supposed to utter a word about it, Cocaine Cowboys, Los Muchachos. Thank you so much. As you know, you are always welcome on this show. Thanks for having us, Rob. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on all fine podcatchers, including NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>